Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. We've got a great show prepared for you today. We're going to be talking about reimagining the last mile in banking and the BAS business models that will ensure safe and secure delivery of financial products. To do that, we've assembled a panel of experts who will provide valuable insights into the current state and future of BAS business models. You'll hear how these models are morphing to reshape the financial industry. And as we explore where banking and BAS have evolved from, We'll also tackle BAS business models in the future and the path forward for the different players in the ecosystem. Tearsheet thanks our partner, Infinite, for helping make this conversation and others like it a reality. Joining me on the show today is Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst Consulting Group. Kate brings over a decade of industry experience and is a renowned fintech thought leader. Her insights have been featured in publications like CNBC, the Fintech Times, Business Insider, and now Tearsheet, making her a sought-after expert in the field. Also on the show is John Bearden, Chief Banking Officer at ThreadBank. Previously, John served as President of the Middle Tennessee Banking Group at Renaissance Bank. He previously led the Depository Fixed Income Practice at Stiffel Financial as well. Last on our panel, Sarah Howell, Head of Partnerships at Infinite. With her background in card payments and fintech, Sarah is a key figure in the Bass landscape. She's played a vital role in the launch of Apple Pay and been a thought leader during her tenure at Visa. Her insights have been featured in publications like American Banker and The Financial Brand, now Tearsheet as well. So without further ado, here's our show. Um, so I, I think the way we set it up, and I think this is going to be interesting, we're going to go, we're going to look backwards, we're going to look at where we are today, and then we're going to look at the future. So let's go back to the history of Bass. This will be for you, Kate. Um, could you provide an overview of the historical development of banking and its evolution into the modern concept of banking as a service? I'm curious how BAS has transformed over the years to changing economic and technological landscapes. Sure. So I think we all know the way that banking looks and feels has been much the same for a long time, right? You go to your bank, typically via branch or desktop or mobile, and you'll access a range of financial products that could be checking accounts, savings accounts, loans, what have you. Um, But at the heart of that has generally been this direct line between the bank and the end client. And that's what's really starting to change now. We're starting to see financial products delivered more and more in non-bank channels. And a major driver of that is the rise of banking as a service, which enables banking institutions to acquire customers by providing access to the financial system to non-bank companies, which includes fintechs, right, that want to offer financial services. And the origins of this date back several decades, right, to the rise of co-branded cards. But it really catapulted over the last several years in response to a large influx of private capital into the fintech space. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's precisely when we started to see some cracks in the armor, right? Everything hit a couple of headwinds related to that market contracting, first of all. And then a number of compliance-related issues. If you follow this space, you've seen headlines all over the place about these partnerships kind of collapsing and, you know, regulators coming in and issuing consent orders. So at this point, we're starting to see this evolution away from that original model um, with a focus on different ways to maximize value and and minimize risk. And I think, you know, that's kind of going to be the basis of, of our conversation today is, is how we're going about that evolution. Mm-hmm. So let's let's drill in now to where we are. Um, that's great. So so with all the changes and shakeouts that you're describing, um, and obviously this increased regulatory scrutiny, what are the key characteristics and components of the current state of BAS and and the business models that accompany that? 
How have BAS offerings evolved to meet the demands of the market? And what opportunities and challenges do these models present for traditional banks and fintech companies? Kate and uh, John, I'll leave this open to you guys. Jump in. Kate, you want to go first? And I'll, I'll sure. jump in. Sure, I can, I can go Two first. Two plate speakers. I, <laughs> I, I tend to put banking as a service really into two key buckets, um, indirect and, and direct. And on the indirect side, you have really this model by which a sponsor bank or a banking as a service bank is working with fintech or non non-bank companies to help them provide financial services, but they have a, a middleman in the middle, and that's a, a banking as a service provider. There's a whole crop of these providers. And then within that, you can sort of break that down into um, two further subsets. You have one banking as a service provider model that is really focused on abstracting away the bank fintech relationship. I think we can all probably agree. And, and you know, I'd, I'd be interested in everyone else's thoughts on this, that that is very much a failed model. And we are, as an industry, moving away from that at this point. And then on the other side, you have banking as a service providers that tend to you know, try and put a lot of emphasis on the bank fintech relationship. And there may be more of a technology facilitator, um, you know, just trying to kind of, you know, help everybody get up and running and, and maintain their their program. So that's really the direct model. It's sort of, uh, I'm sorry, the indirect model. It's sort of, you know, this three-pronged approach to banking as a service. It usually involves a three-way revenue split, for example. Um, and then, you know, on the direct side, you have banks that are working directly with their fintech clients. There is no middleman in the middle. And the economics of that are, are a little bit different. I think maybe I'll... I'll Punch it to John now. He could talk a little bit more yeah, about that. Yeah, thanks, Kate. I mean, I completely agree with everything you just stated. And I, I would break down the indirect model maybe a little bit more and say that um, the indirect model can be split into a passive approach and an active approach to working with these middleware mm-hmm. providers. And if you look back a couple of years and go back to kind of pre-pandemic uh, timeframe, you saw a lot of banks that got into this business of sponsoring fintechs with these middleware providers, we're taking a very passive approach where the, you know, the fintech or the middleware providers stepped in and, and with the premise that their technology and their approach to working with the fintechs was better than what a bank could provide directly. And so the banks basically handed over their responsibilities to these middleware providers to both go out and procure that fintech relationship, but also provide a lot of the oversight of that relationship in, in addition to providing the ledgering. Uh, technology. So that that model existed for several years and it, it prospered. Uh, a lot of the banks did very well. They were early adopters of supporting fintechs and providing depository services. But like I said, many of those relationships were very passive, where the bank had very little knowledge of the end user, very little knowledge of the fintech, and very little knowledge of what was going on with some of those programs. And so I think that model is the one that's really been challenged over the past 12 months, it's specifically post-SVB and the, and the issues around the banking sector back in the spring. We've seen the regulators really zero in on the space and want to make sure that the banks are really in tune with what's going on with these partners and ultimately the end user, which is a contractual legal client of the bank. And so they really want to make sure that the bank is taking an active role in how they work with their partners and the end user. So I think the other uh, component of the indirect model that we've seen start to proliferate in the industry is a bit of a pivot from the middleware providers to say, okay, we can't be 
the star of the show anymore. We really need to come in and support the banks as they face the fintech and the end user directly. So it's more of an active approach to working with those middleware providers where the bank has direct oversight, direct engagement with the fintech and the end user. And I think that is the only model that will survive with these middleware providers that we've seen over the past couple of years. John, you, you brought up a really good point, and I've not heard it said that way, a passive and direct model from the bank's perspective. I, I'm just curious, do you feel like some of that passivity was due in part to maybe the bank didn't know what they didn't know when they're entering the space and who, who who was offering guidance? Or do you think it really was more a matter of, okay, this is just a distribution channel, much like auto lending, and I'm going to set my buy box of what I expect and I'm going to let it go? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, uh, Sarah, it's a good question. I think if you look at some of the early players in the space, I think there were some some really early players. If you go back a decade plus, the, the early pioneers in the space, the Bancorp Bank and Meta, which is now Pathword, they got into the business in prepaid cards. And I think they they took some arrows early on. They went through this the consent orders and everything. And they've, they've matured. They've improved their internal controls and processes. And they were able to generate significant deposit growth, significant fee income. And I think a lot of other players saw an opportunity to partner with fintechs to get involved. And they probably thought initially, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think they probably thought we can get involved and partner with with fintechs in one way or another and attract those deposits and the fee income. Mm -hmm. And and when they got into the business, they saw these middleware providers that allowed kind of a shortcut to get there faster than developing their own technology uh, to provide these services and be able to attract those deposits, those whether they were low-cost deposits pre-pandemic or the interchange income or fee income that comes with that. But it was a way for them to amplify their business model. And we've seen, we're going to talk about you know what's going on in the market in general. I think the market is dictating that there's better technology out there for financial products and services than the three bank, the three primary core banking providers uh, allow, such so Jack Henry, Pfizer, and FIS, which most brick and mortar banks in the United States are tethered to these core providers. Okay. And so the marketplace is asking for something more. And the banks that gravitated towards this marketplace early were the beneficiaries. But I, but again, back to my previous comments, I think they, they saw an opportunity to get involved, but it was a very passive approach where they handed over a lot of those responsibilities to the middleware providers. And I think those decisions are coming home to roost uh, in the current regulatory environment. One of the things that you just touched on briefly is that those really early players, they existed and they built these programs before the indirect model was even really an option and before a lot of those banking as a service providers emerged. So all of those banks actually have and operate a direct model. Mm-hmm. Correct. Exactly. Which, which is right. interesting because we're now like we 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 saw a number of of programs and banks, you know, going direct because they were building the foundations, and then we saw the BAS providers come in and sort of the rise of this indirect model, and now it seems that we're you know kind of swinging back the other way a little bit, mm-hmm. and you know we'll probably find an equilibrium somewhere. Great point. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. It's almost like we needed to go through that to be able to come back to this to this point. Yeah. Um, and, and it feels like, you know, if we had this conversation a couple of years ago, we were still talking about banks being afraid of being dumb pipes. You know, that was the terminology. Mm-hmm. It seems like we've, we've moved beyond that because we see the potential that that having, you know, fintech clients can bring to a, to a financial institution. Right. 
Yeah. Well, and I think even you're, you're exactly right, um, Zach. And then even bringing back, going through this cycle has helped bring more banks on board with, you know, kind of lowers a barrier to entry, mm-hmm. I think, for some of these guys, because to go out like one of the prepaid guys, like a, a Pathword or a, you know, a, a Sutton or a um, Bancor, like they've built incredible operating models um, around that. And so, some of the middleware providers have really allowed an on-ramp for some of the sponsor banks to, to generate those operating models internally. Um, yeah, it so definitely feels like the evolution, good. right? Yeah. 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 I see it's good for the, for the industry to get more banks involved. And now let's, let's mature together as an industry of what's going to be the safe and sound model moving forward. Yeah. To- totally agree with that. I think it's the evolution of the business. I think, is the regulators have gotten more involved um, in banking as a service and trying to figure out what it means and what it means from just the, the, the mechanics of running a bank. Um, I think that uh, the, the kind of North star, if you will, is that the bank needs to be in control. Uh, they need to be in control of the oversight of these programs and have direct relationships with, with the end user. But all that said, I think the middleware providers have added a valuable service in terms of technology and really assisting fintechs and helping them understand what some of the regulatory requirements are from a compliance and BSA and AML perspective to enter this space and to offer banking products and services to their end users. Yeah. Yeah. And do you guys see uh, maybe some of the banks doing both an indirect and a direct model? Do you, do you see value in that? Yeah, I, I, I do, Sarah. And I, again, I think the the indirect model is evolving rapidly to look a lot more like a direct model. Mm-hmm. So because I, I don't think the indirect model is going to be allowed to exist the way it was two or three years ago. So I think you're seeing several players in that space offering their software directly to banks instead of being the the entity that goes out and acquires the fintech from a sales perspective and has the direct oversight of those programs. I think that model, as we said, is shifting pretty dramatically. So I think both a direct model and an indirect indirect in that context can work. The the indirect and we'll get into this in more detail. I think the the working with a middleware provider, even if it's licensing their software, um, you're, you're beholden to their tech stack. So you've got to like their tech stack and the products and services that they're offering through their channel um, to, to make that decision to continue working with, with a middleware provider. And then the economics and commercials that come with having three parties involved versus two. So there's a lot of considerations. I think for smaller fintechs that are coming into the market that want to offer banking, uh, banking products and services, the middleware providers can still add some value because they do kind of provide the training wheels necessary to help some of these smaller companies be prepared to offer these services to their customers. Great point. How about you, Sarah? Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> um, I, th- I think that, um, I think whenever you're looking at this, this uh, whole Baz business model industry, it's good to look at it from all angles. You need a processor, you need a bank, and then you need a distribution partner, an embedded finance partner. And so having the ability to almost have the chameleon perspective where I can put my processor hat on and saying, okay, what what needs to happen in order for it to be successful here? My bank hat on and then my fintech or embedded finance customer hat on. And I like to put that last hat on a lot because John brought up a really, really good point because these guys that are starting off 
they need training wheels. They need to understand like, okay, what do I have to have from a compliance perspective if I'm going to embed financial products into my solution set? And you should really only be talking to SaaS technology providers who have an, a, a different go-to-market strategy for, for you know, and embedding financial products into that to create a holistic offering and not just a neobank at this point in the maturation. That's just my little soapbox. But um you know, you want those guys to start off and you want them to mature and you want them to get bigger. And so what I think having step functions within the industry that allow them to do that mm -hmm. is um, is very thoughtful for banks to think about as they're building out their strategy. I want to maybe put my little guys on a Baz middleware provider. And then I want to want to have a direct relationship with them once they grow up. And if I want to if they're big enough and they want to choose their own processor, I want to allow enough flexibility in my business model to win that business if I need to. Um, but then also if, you know, I want them to grow up and and come straight to a tech stack that I'm powering. So now I can get both the sponsor bank revenue as well as tech revenue on behalf of that fintech and processing revenue of, of a sense. Then I want to have that option. So optionality across yep. the value chain and the growth maturity of the fintech client, I think, is is really key to keep in focus. The, the one thing I'd add to that, I'm sure Kate wants to jump in, so I'll, I'll be quiet here in a second. But uh, the one thing I would add to, to Sarah's comments is a lot of it is product driven. So mm -hmm. if if a sponsor is just purely looking, uh, a fintech rather, is looking for a sponsor bank to purely offer deposit products, so a DDA, savings account, debit card, that's a pretty vanilla banking as a service uh offering that we could support through a middleware provider. Uh, again, with uh, the caveat being that the bank really needs to be in control in this environment. So that legacy uh, middleware provider model, I think is really challenged. But I think going direct, it allows uh, banks like Thread the opportunity to offer more products and services. So lending products, payment, merchant acquiring, the other things that are going to help really build that ecosystem and that moat around those fintech relationships to better serve their end customers. Yeah. We want that flexibility and optionality to be able to do that through a direct model. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. I, um, so when I was doing the research for the report, Reimagining Last Macklin Banking, that Zach held up and that we published in collaboration with Infinite, um, in all of the, the conversations that I had with executives, this idea of flexibility came up over and over again. And how do you balance sort of the efficiency of a one-size-fits-all solution with the need to differentiate and, and customize in this new environment? Because as banking as a service evolves, you know, just having a card program is not necessarily going to be the way of the future. It doesn't necessarily make sense from an economic standpoint um, or from a competitive standpoint. So getting that balance right, a, a number of executives talked to me about having both a direct model and an indirect model. The direct model being to be able to serve some of those niche use cases that you cannot necessarily address with a tech stack that's built for the masses. Right. Um, right. But then having, you know, an indirect capability to help with some of those more simple use cases and also, you know, to potentially provide a, a pipeline of relationships as well. Okay. I'd like to throw out and, and pivot the conversation towards bank-owned technology and, and, and where that's headed. Um, maybe, John, we can start with you. Yeah. So uh, maybe if I go back to the founding of Thread uh, in the spring of 21, 
Now we recapitalized a small bank and we had this vision right from day one of providing embedded banking or embedded uh, financial solutions to small businesses. That was the kind of core of what Thread was meant to be. And initially we thought we're going to build our own tech. We're going to build our, or at least we're going to build an integration layer above the core and plug in the uh, the required vendors to, to serve small businesses. And um, and then we got into the space and got in the business and, and quickly learned about middleware providers. And then the evolution of our thinking has led us to really come to the conclusion that we want to uh, probably refrain from us building uh, as much tech as possible. So we, we want to really let the experts do that and partner with the good technology companies that uh, they can provide uh, best in class, world class technology. Uh, this goes back to, you know, I think a lot of what banks struggle with today is uh, the, the legacy technology from the core three. And they're all great companies, huge market caps. I mean, they've, they've obviously done very well and they've been very acquisitive over time. But I think when you look at what the market requires today, it requires innovative, you know, entrepreneurial uh, minded fintechs that are developing software solutions that are specific to industries where they're solving a problem within a specific industry and then plugging in banking products and services is uh, is part of that solution. And we think that is the future. So we're not going to go this thread. We're not going to go out and build that technology to serve different uh, industries where we're solving a, a particular problem for different industries, but we're going to partner with companies that do and then have the infrastructure to be able to scale uh, with those opportunities. That's great. That Do you see, John, um, not just you guys embedding into those practice management software providers or, you know, in vertical SaaS providers, but also the ability for you to embed into your ecosystem, um, kind of almost looking at the bank as your customers being an ecosystem that you could resell adjacent products to as well? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right, Sarah. So we, we want to create a stack where we can serve either fintech partners or direct customers with similar technology, yeah. right? And so one of the, um, we can get into to more of the, the regulatory discussion, but I know one of the primary concerns we continue to hear about is this concept of a living will. And so what they mean by that, what the regulators mean by that is if the fintech fails to raise additional money and they go out of business, what is the bank going to do with all these customers? And so what we want at Thread, and I'm sure many of our peer banks are, are trying to achieve as well is to have a tech stack where we can serve those customers and provide many of the same services, many of the same integrations with their ERP to be able to provide, you know, uh, whether it's uh, AP, AR, uh, working capital, uh, uh, yeah. software solutions, working with QuickBooks, Zero, et cetera, uh, being able to provide uh, access to, to FedNow, real-time payments, you know, all the things that they're looking for through their fin all the end users are looking through uh, looking for through their fintech relationships, we can be able to provide those directly uh, should that day come. But that that's certainly not something that we want to happen. But but as a backup, it helps us prepare for the future and also have a direct offering from Thread uh, based on the technology we're, we're developing that's with great. our partners. And you, sorry, I'm just curious to you, because I, I tend to think of this as like the flip side of embedded finance, right? Like when you can kind of begin to integrate non-financial services into your own offerings, do you think of those products as value-added services that you can kind of wrap around your back and allow your clients to offer their end clients as well, even outside of a living will situation? Yeah, absolutely, Kate. I mean, I think we want to 
kind of land and expand, right? So we want to start with the kind of core base banking products, deposits, the go to loans, then look at uh, payments, but then partner with other vertical SaaS companies to, to solve solutions and then, and then wrap, whether we're wrapping around their software or vice versa, we want to be able to provide those solutions to, uh, to the SMBs that need both banking and software solutions. Yeah. And, and honestly, um, I think that's, that's a phenomenal strategy, John and Kate, to your point, um, that's kind of the whole premise for the whole infinite platform is like we wanted to be able to make the bank a platform. So whether you're embedding into your direct customers, some, you know, non-traditional financial services and some ta- some SaaS tech solutions, or you're exposing out, uh, you know, f- embedded finance capabilities. Um, it, it doesn't matter with a platform banking model, you can embed in or you can embed out. I guess how, in this model, how, how does it impact banks, the bank's revenue streams, John, whether whether we're talking about embedding fintech into the customer platform or embedding the bank services externally into into another uh, into a fintech, say um, in the direct model, how, do, how does it how does it change? Sorry, not the direct model, but the bank owned technology model. How does that how does that impact revenue? Yeah, well, it's, it, you know, I think whether it's direct or indirect, I think the, the revenue model for banking as a service is, is really something we should probably discuss. I, I think what's different about banking as a service uh, as a revenue model uh, relative to brick and mortar banks is that it allows the bank to partner with, with fintech companies who are acquiring the customer. So it lowers your customer acquisition costs. It creates a very efficient way for the bank to partner with other entities to reach a much broader audience. And so assuming that you can get comfortable from a compliance standpoint with that audience, whether it's uh, a specific industry, SMBs or consumers, uh, it allows you to bank a lot of folks. And uh, and so that that allows banks to reach a lot of people. And then what is the revenue opportunity? It's really generating deposits. So deposits uh, create revenue for a bank. It's our, for a bank, that's cost of goods sold. So deposits are the fuel that allow for uh, the investment on the assets out of the balance sheet, whether it's securities or loans. So we need, all banks need deposits and the more you can generate, the better, especially if they're lower cost. So deposits are the kind of key revenue stream. Then of course, you've got monthly fees, you've got interchange on just the pure deposit place. So whether it's debit card, charge cards, credit cards, there's the interchange piece, there's monthly fees associated with these programs. And then, of course, we want to go beyond that and provide other banking services, whether it be lending products, credit, uh, and then merchant acquiring to help merchants, SMBs process payments uh, by providing an embedded kind of going back to this kind of bundling concept. Taking what you would normally get from going to a very large bank and you want all these services as a small business, we want to be able to provide those through an embedded financial service offering. So there's obviously fees and interchange on the on the acquiring side as well. So it opens the door to a lot of different revenue streams while keeping your customer acquisition costs very low. The, the flip side of that is the bank is investing heavily in compliance and operational support. Mm-hmm. So unlike a brick and mortar that may have far fewer BSA and AML officers, far fewer compliance officers, a bank like Threat or any other vast bank has to invest heavily in the infrastructure to be able to support these partnerships and work with these different fintechs to make sure that we're exporting all of the, the regulatory compliance uh, requirements to our partners. And John, D, quick question. That Thanks for the 
that's a good analogy and summary of kind of um, all the different revenue streams. But do you also see some opportunities for, you know, subscription SaaS models um, if you own your own tech stack or if you are embedding, you know, third party tech stack or vertical SaaS into your ecosystem? Yeah, I think we, from the very get-go, Sarah, we've talked about that and just trying to find the right opportunities where we can own the tech, where it's bespoke and unique to Thread, and then whether we can sell that to other community banks that are looking for those solutions or potentially to fintechs directly as well. Yeah, yeah. Definitely opportunities for probably non-interest income. You know. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I, we're getting near the end of our conversation. I'd love to introduce the voice of the customer, the end customer, the end user here. Um, as we're talking about, and it feels like we've gone full circle like over the few years, like going from unbundling to rebundling now. That's what it sounds like Thread is doing. Um, can we talk about how these strategies align with the needs and expectations of customers today and, and what that means for traditional banking services and the types of relationships you forge with customers? take a shot at this i think i think the way that customer expectations are changing and being set is happening first outside of banking right we talk about this all the time it's happening in areas like e-commerce and entertainment in particular and it's sort of that on-demand delivery of everything and we have struggled to really translate that into financial services we've been talking about it for years um, and we have sort of, you know, little bits and pieces of it here and there. I think banking as a service probably represents the most clear trajectory towards that. Mm -hmm. um, but we're definitely not there yet. What it, what it promises, though, is to bring into reality the ability to consume financial services at the point of need. So to be able to access a loan product within um, an e-commerce checkout flow, for example, where I don't have to take a second step. And, and at that point, you know, we'll really start to see kind of like the Amazonification of banking. But we've been talking about that for a very long time. And it does yeah. still feel like we're very much on a, on a journey mm -hmm. um, to a point somewhere in the future. Yeah, and I think a lot of us have very fragmented financial lives, whether that's a, as consumers or even as business owners or, or um, you know, as businesses, you, you can have two or three commercial banks. Um, and then as as an end customer, you can have multiple financial relationships. Some are direct with banks and others are, you know, through an embedded finance model like a Venmo or a Cash App. So um, I think with all of that fragmentation happening at the end user level, we'll continue to kind of still be evolving, which is good news, I think, for the industry and more opportunities for more banks to get in, into the BAS model. Yeah, I, I would agree with, with all those comments. I mean, I think we're still in the early days. I mean, there, there's certainly uh, been some early movers and we're learning from the early movers and continuing to improve and work with our regulators. I think there's a lot of education that still needs to occur on that front. Yeah. Um, I, I saw an interesting report, you all may have seen it, that Cornerstone Advisors put out earlier this year it's back in the summertime that um, one of the stats that they had in the in the report was 47% of new checking accounts open in 2023 through the second quarter were open through digital banks or fintechs. Mm -hmm. So 47% of accounts were not opened at a traditional bank. And then secondly, 72% of checking accounts open in 23 through, through the first six months were opened by Gen Zers or millennials. 
And so if you, if you start to look at the, the younger generations kind of coming through and growing up and starting to take over businesses, uh, th this is what they're used to. And they're going to be driving the marketplace and they're going to require better products and services through technology. I don't think you have that loyalty to the brick and mortar banks that you may see with the baby boomer generation, even the Gen Xers. So I think this, this movement is here to stay. It's going to be a journey to continue to improve the way we do it, the way we interact with our regulators to make sure that there's proper oversight and safety and soundness of these different uh, partnerships. Great point. That makes uh, for a great conversation today. Sarah, Kate, John, thanks so much for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Zach. Enjoyed it. This is great. Thank you.